0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Great questions are powerful, aren't they? A soul-stirring question can provoke deep self-reflection. Maybe an inspiring question can motivate you to change. Or sometimes a thoughtful, well-articulated question can challenge someone to act. And this morning, I want to ask you such a question. And this morning, if we'll consider that question, I believe... That it can do all three of those things. If we'll consider this question, it can cause self-reflection. It can motivate you to change and even challenge you to act. I do believe it's a question that could change your life. Now on the surface, it's a question that gets asked Again and again throughout our lives, I can promise you right now, it's not a question you've never heard of before. It's actually a question you've heard many times in your life, from the first day of school to first dates, uh, college essays. Ask this question. You'll you'll get asked this question in job interviews, even loan applications will ask you this question. It's asked by schoolmates and classmates, roommates, co-workers, supervisors, neighbors, dating partners, spouses, friends, family. Even strangers will ask you this question. You have probably been asked this question hundreds of times and in hundreds of ways, and yet most of the time, when this question is asked, we actually downplay the significance of this question. But this morning, I want to ask this question, and I want us to really consider it. Now when I ask, when I tell you what this question is, you, you're going to have a very strong temptation to dismiss it. Be like, oh, yeah, okay, uh, now that I know what that question is, okay, that's not really that big of a, of a deal. But let me, let me warn you, that, that would be the wrong thing to do this morning. This is a question that you cannot downplay just because it's familiar. You understand that, right? Just because something is familiar doesn't mean it's not profound. In fact, sometimes the the familiar can be quite profound. So don't let the familiarity of this question keep you from giving it the weight and consideration it deserves. I know most of you are like trying to think, like, what is this question? So are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? You sure? Because if you're not, I'll just pack up and go home. All right, you ready for this question? I told you it could change your life. And I really do believe it. It's not a a trick question either. So here's the question. Who are you? Who are you? Now some of you dismissed it already. Who are you? I know who I am. But do you? Do you know who you are? It is the most distilled way to ask about your identity. There's lots of ways to get at your identity. There's lots of angles you can go, but who are you, at least in the English language, is the most distilled, direct way to get at your identity. Now, typically when we're asked this question... Uh, we give these prefabbed answers. You know what I mean? Like you've got some, some, some things kind of looming in the back. If, if people ask you that question, you've got some quick answers to give to people. And typically when we do that, we give our identity and when we, when we describe it, we do so in a way that talks about some of the roles we have or maybe some of the titles we have or maybe uh, some biographical information about our life. So uh, we talk about maybe our roles in our family. We talk about our careers, Our ethnicity, our age, our teams, our political groups, our hobbies, our geographies. And again, uh, none of these are are inherently wrong or bad. They do tell something of our story. And they're important. They tell something of our identity. But I would like to uh, uh, present to you this morning that they only go so deep. They really stay at the level of the surface. They don't go below the frost line down to the bedrock. They're important, but you don't want to build a life entirely on them. See, you and I, whether we're aware, we're aware of it or not, we are always living out some sense of identity. Sometimes it's conscious. You're like, I am, this is who I am, and therefore this is what I'll do. It's conscious. You're making deliberate decisions about who you are. And other times, most of the time probably, it is happening much below the level of consciousness. But you and I are always living out of some kind of identity. And that's because, it's not because I'm, you know, I've got degrees, advanced degrees in psychology or whatnot. It's because that's how every human being is. Human beings. Think about it do things. You're not human doings, you're human beings. And your doing flows out of your being. Another way to think about it is identity drives activity. Your identity drives your activity. And your foundational identity, whatever at the bottom, at the core, shapes how you think about everything. It drives how you feel and how you respond to life. Friends, if you're confused, ...about who you are, then you will be confused about how to live. If there is confusion about who you are, there will necessarily be confusion about what you do. Or to state it another way, if you don't know who you are, you will not know how to live. That's why it's one of the most profound questions you could ever ask. And one of the beauties, one of the gifts of the gospel is that in Christ we are given a new identity. It's an identity that, that by, the, by the weight and significance of it drives out every other identity. It goes deeper than any other identity that you could possibly live out of. And not only does it tell us who we are, but because it gives us that identity, it tells us how to live. Well, this morning, we're continuing in our series in Romans 8 called Identity in Christ, This chapter has been called the greatest chapter in the greatest book. It's a chapter that begins, and I, and I wanted us this morning in our reading to go back and not just read the passage this morning, but to capture for us the, the beginning of this chapter because it begins with no condemnation, and as we'll see, Romans 8 ends with no separation. Think about those bookends. There is no condemnation and therefore no separation, and all throughout... This book, this chapter, the gospel is constant, it's compelling, and it's clear. It is gospel after gospel after gospel after gospel, verse after verse. Paul wants to remind believers of who they are in Christ. Now, if you were to study this passage grammatically, to look at all of the uh, grammatical constructs that are in this chapter, one thing you're going to find is it's a chapter full of indicatives, Without any grammatical imperatives. And here's what that means. Indicatives make statements about truth and fact. They say, this is. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of, like, what do you think about it? It's just, this is true. Chapter, verse after verse, it's, this is what is true. This is what is true. This is what reality is. Imperatives are commands, right? They tell you what to do. So go do this. Put this into place. Do that. And for 39 verses, Paul's going to say, this is what is true about you. He spends 39 verses saying, this is who you are. The very God of the universe who has not just the right and responsibility, but the authority and power to speak things into existence is going to spend 39 verses saying, this is who God says you are. Regardless of of what anyone else tells you, regardless of how even you feel about it, he is going to tell you this is who you are. Now the Bible is certainly full of commands and imperatives. We need to be told, okay, then what do we do? The gospel certainly comes with implications. But in this chapter, before Paul gets into the, the last half of the book, Where there's a ton of imperatives. He wants you to know who you are so that you can embrace and receive your identity in Christ. This morning we have three verses to cover. And Paul is going to tell us three true things about your identity in Christ. So he's going to say, if it's true, if you are in Christ, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then these three things are true about you. First, truth number one, you are in the Spirit. See, being a Christian isn't less than a new set of beliefs and actions and and values. It's so much more. The Bible says there is a real, genuine change that you are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And we're going to unpack what that means. First, you are in the Spirit. Second, you are alive. Paul's going to tell you that though it is true that your body still suffer the curse, the weight, the sting of death, there is new life in you. You are spiritually alive. It's not a mood. It's not a feeling. It's a reality that the life-giving work of redemption starts now. And number three, your future is secure. When you think about identity, one of the important uh, Uh, Things you must consider is what is your trajectory? Identities have trajectories. And it's important to know where we're going. And our new identity in Christ has a super bright future that is as secure as the resurrection of Jesus. So let's look at these three things together because they're going to tell us who we are And that matters because it will tell us what to do. So, being leads to doing. That's one of those gospel realities you just need to get in your brain. Identity determines activity. Let's start in verse 9 to see that first truth that you are in the Spirit. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now, in order for verse 9 to make sense, you need, to, you need the context of what has come before. It's one of my greatest hopes that, that the more you, you come, the more you uh, learn about uh, God's word, you would realize context is important. I will make it a point painstakingly to teach us that you can't just pull verses out of context, that it matters. The, the, the setting that they're in. So uh, in order for verse 9 to make sense, you've got to understand the context of verses 5 to 8 because really verses 5 to 11 is one kind of complete section. And Paul started in verse 5 to say there really are just two kinds of people in the world. There are those that are in the flesh. I'll put the flesh category over here. And there are those who are in Christ. And they are categorically different. You know like a Venn diagram where there's like overlap? There, Paul's saying there, there's, there is no Venn diagram here. You, you are either in the flesh over here or you are in Christ over here. There, there's, no, there's no connection uh, between the two. Categorically different. And in verses 5 to 8, he says those who are in the flesh, here's what is true about them. If you're in the flesh, you are dead in your sins. You are hostile to God. You're literally an enemy of God. You are held captive in the flesh, and you are unwilling and unable to please God. All of those things are true about those who are in the flesh. And then he says, but but there's this other category, being in Christ. And he talked about how now we have peace with God. We have life in the Spirit. And then in verse 9, he says, you, however, you... The first word there should jump off the page. That's identity language. He's saying you. He's assuming for the sake of his argument that the people reading this letter are in Christ. They are believers. And he's saying believer, Christian, you are not this person anymore. You are categorically different. Friends, if you are a Christian... Right above that little word you in your Bible, you could write your name. So that every time you read Romans 8, you see your name. That is talking about you. All of those indicatives, all of those things that, that, that talk about what it means to be in Christ are true of you. Everything that follows here, verses 9 to 11, are true statements about you. And they are true irrespective of how you feel about it. I don't know that we've ever lived at a time, every, every culture and time has its problems and issues. I don't know that we've ever lived at a time where, the, where feelings, like how I feel, has superseded what is true. You'll tell people like true statements that for thousands of years, however long humans have been alive, you could say those things and people are like, oh, yeah, that's true. But now we live at a time where you go, yeah, but I don't know if I feel like it's true. A- as if my feelings about reality change reality. So it's important to, to, to really emphasize this that when God says something is true about you, it doesn't mean that your feelings about it aren't important. It just means they don't supersede what is true and they don't invalidate what is true. The mistakes you made this week do not invalidate these truths. The struggles with which you struggle don't threaten them. The doubt you experience doesn't tarnish it. See, the grace that we're going to unpack in verses 9 to 11, they abound below your sin, above your sin, beyond your sin. Where sin is present in your life, grace abounds all the more. So Paul says, you, yes, you, you are not in the flesh. You've been redeemed from that. You've been rescued from that. You've been set free from that. You remember how Paul started the chapter 8, uh, chapter eight verse 1. In Christ, you are free from eternal condemnation. Verse 2, you've been set free from the damning curse and power of sin. Verse 3, God the Father has executed the penalty for your sin and the crucified flesh of his son. So yes, your sin deserved real punishment, but Christ took that on. What's more is Christ in verse four lived a perfect life of obedience and then credited that righteousness to your account so that it now has become true of you that you are righteous. And now the Holy Spirit helps us To grow and desire and to walk in that obedience. So now Paul says, Christian, believer, you, yes you, take hold of your new identity. That is who you are. You are not in the flesh. You are no longer governed by by the sinful human nature. You're not held captive anymore by the master of sin. You are no longer unable and unwilling to please God. Rather, you are now able to please God. You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. A new reality has taken place. There has been a change of status. You have been transferred from this domain over here, being in the flesh. You have been delivered out of that and now put in this new domain of being in Christ You were in the realm and dominion of the flesh, but now you are not. You are in the realm and the dominion of the Spirit. Now, when we talk about being in the Spirit, I don't want you to think I mean like you're in the mood for something. Like you could be in the mood for burgers today or maybe in the mood for pizza today or in the mood for whatever. That's not what it means to be in the Spirit. It's not a feeling. It's not a mood. It's a real dynamic change. So in college, I did a study abroad program in Italy. I had studied Italian for four semesters, and if you did those four semesters, at the end of that, you you, you were able now to go do this study abroad program. And so uh, you got to go live in Italy um, for the summer. You lived with a family. You took classes, and there were all these weekend trips. Now, I don't know if you know this, but my last name is Patronella. It's Italian. It doesn't get more Italian than that. My heritage is Italian. I can trace my family's um, origin to a small village in Sicily called Salaparuta. Like my dad's magnum opus was to trace our heritage. It goes back to like the 1600s. That's how far back I know my family's origin. I am Italian. I know the port of call where my great-great-grandparents immigrated to this country, and that summer... At the, like the end of this program, I spoke Italian, I dreamed Italian, I ate Italian, I lived and breathed Italian. In fact, one of the greatest compliments was when American tourists would see me out on the streets and would come up to me assuming I was just an Italian citizen there. And I would pretend like that's exactly who I am. And I would tell them I don't speak any English. I don't know where this is. It was awesome. I have never felt more Italian in my life. But you know what? As Italian as I felt, it didn't make me an Italian citizen. Did it? No. I am a citizen of the United States of America. And no matter how Italian I felt, that didn't change. My passport said, citizen of the United States of America. See, feelings do not change my status as a citizen. See, in verse 9, Paul's not describing a feeling. He is telling you that a real dynamic, true change has taken place. In Christ, you are no longer a citizen of the flesh, you are now a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on to draw out what that means. He says, Christian, you are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in. You. You are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. Notice there's a mutual indwelling. You are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. You see that? Now, what does that mean? Well, first, let me just tell you the Bible just simply states this as a matter of fact. It just says this is what's true that you are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. The Spirit dwells in a believer. You notice the Bible never speaks about the mechanics of this metaphysical reality. Like how exactly does the spirit dwell in you and how exactly like metaphysically, like what's happening? I know all the engineers in the room are like, but I wanna know how it works. And here's what I'm telling you. We have no idea, none, we don't know. The Bible just says, hey, you're in the spirit and the spirit is in you. Though I can't tell you how it works, I can just tell you that it does work. That, that it is a reality. Because the Bible is telling you that's what has happened. A real change has taken place. And additionally, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. A lot of times people talk about uh, being uh, uh, in the spirit or having the spirit as, as a, um, they think about it like, like power, like fuel in the gas tank. Or if you've got an electric car, a charge in your battery. I think I've got everyone here now. So think about this analogy. In this analogy, they go, yeah, like you, you need a charge. You need, a, you need fuel. And so you can get filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you like, go on about your life, and as you use the Holy Spirit, you, it depletes, but then you need to be filled again. See how that works? Like when you drive your car, eventually you run out of fuel or you run out of charge, right? And you need to be filled again. And this cycle goes on and on and on and on and on throughout your life. Now let me say, there are passages where the language is used of being filled with the Holy Spirit so I can understand how we might take something in our life where we go oh I have an example in my life where I get filled in the depleted filled and the depleted so that must mean that must be like what this word means over here and, and let me tell you something that is not what is happening that is not what it means to be filled or indwelt by the Holy Spirit look at me when you are filled with the Holy Spirit when when the Holy Spirit dwells in you it is a settled reality it is not something that changes. This is talking about a change of status, being in one realm and then now being in another realm. It, 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 it's, it's a change like getting married. One minute you're not married, and then the next minute you are married. You're never like kind of married. You see what I'm saying? It's a change of status. It's settled reality. Now, what the Bible means by being filled it, like, and that happening over and over has more to do with us and our posture towards him and giving him access to our life, then it means that we need more of him. The Holy Spirit is never like, you know, uh, like, like he loves me, he loves me not. He's with me, he's with me not. It's not like that. The Holy Spirit is always with you. Has much more to do. When, when Paul's talking about we need to be filled again, he's talking about you, you need to give yourself to this already there presence of God. He gives us all of himself, and our job is to do the same and to give him access to our lives. Our problem is that when we become a Christian, we still like to hold on to certain things. And when Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying, give him access to all of you. So that said, what what do we mean? What does the Bible mean by being in the Spirit? Some like to frame it with the word power, right? Because you see in the Bible, there's power in the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. You know, uh, uh, stay here until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit does bring power to help us in our weakness, and he does give us strength to do things beyond what we could do on our own strength. But I want to tell you that's not the primary way of thinking about being in the Spirit. Some like to think about it in terms of performance. To be in the Spirit means he's given me new gifts, new abilities, and now I I can, by the power of the Spirit, uh, serve God and the church in the world. And that is a good thing, but that's not the primary way to think about the Spirit. Some want to frame it with the word purity. That to be in the Spirit means I am able now to live a life of purity in a way that I wasn't able to do before. And that's also true. It's true that the Spirit does work to purify us, in his work of sanctification. But I would like to argue that purity and performance and power are all subsets of a larger category of what I want you to think about when you think about being in the Spirit. So when you think about being in the Spirit and the Spirit being in us, don't primarily think of power, performance, or purity. Those are good things, but I want you to think about the primary reality in this word. Presence. When the, Being in the Spirit and the Spirit being in you means that the presence of God is with you. And I think one of the reasons why we don't think about it that way is because we're not really good at thinking about the whole biblical story. Think about uh, the, in, in the garden. When sin enters in, what is fractured? The presence of God. We're, we're, we're exiled out of the presence of God. Because of the Spirit's presence in our lives, it's why we have access to the power. It's why we have access to performance in these gifts. And it's why the Spirit is able to purify us over the course of our lives. It's because of His presence. And presence helps you think about Him in terms of a person and not just some cosmic energy. A lot of times when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we think about Him in terms of this uh, depersonalized energy. But presence helps avoid that problem because we think about presence, when you think about being in someone's presence, it's because you're there with a person. Presence and person go together. Do you remember in the upper room when Jesus told the disciples that he was leaving and they were were necessarily, uh, their response to that was sadness, right? No, no, no. Jesus, we don't want to not be with you. And Jesus said, no, no, no. It's a good thing that I go. Why? How did he comfort them? He told them that when he goes, then the ministry and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit could begin. And he would send them another counselor who would be with them always. This is the answer to the problem of being exiled and alienated from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. By the will of the Father, by the work of Christ through the Spirit, the presence of God is ours once again. And what a gift, Paul says, it is to have the presence of God. Notice in this passage, the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. So if you're wondering, well, who is the Spirit of Christ? That's another way to talk about the Holy Spirit. The point is this. The Holy Spirit is so identified with the person and work and union with Christ, he can be called the Spirit of Christ. Now think about it. It's... To have the spirit of, of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is to have the same Spirit who is intimately involved with every aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. From the incarnation, it was the Spirit who conceived him in the virgin's womb. Every single day of Jesus' life, the Spirit was informing and shaping his active obedience. All the way to the cross where it was the Spirit who sustained Jesus to love us and give up his life for us. All the way to the tomb. And Christ was placed in the tomb. Who was it that raised him from the dead? See, this same spirit that was with Jesus every step of the way is the same spirit who was given to us. So we can experience the presence of God in our daily life. So Paul uses this language of union, that we are in the spirit and the spirit is within us. We're joined to him. And that union is the confidence And the assurance that we have that we belong to God. You notice, he says, if you have the Spirit of Christ, then you belong to Jesus. He states it negatively. He says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to him. But we could also state that positively. If you have the Spirit, you belong to Jesus. Think about that. This is important. One of the things Christians often struggle with is assurance. How do I know that I belong to Jesus? We all, we, we, because so much of our life is tied to performance, you know, how do, how do I know that I'm going to keep my job? Well, because I do a good job and they want to they, they keep me. It's my performance, right? He says, it's not your performance that you know that you belong to Jesus. How do you know you belong to Jesus? Because you have the Spirit. Our assurance that we belong to Jesus is not based on our performance. So do people with the Holy Spirit Still have problems? Yes. Do people with the Holy Spirit still sin? Yes. Do people still make mistakes and have to offer apologies? Yes. I have the Spirit. I had to offer several apologies this week. It's part of life. Will we still experience the brokenness and pain of this world? Yes, of course. But here's the difference. As you grow in your walk with the Lord, the Spirit will help you learn to put deeds of the flesh to death and to cultivate a life of spirit-filled obedience. You're going to start to find, as you are in the Spirit, as you walk with Him, that your former hostility towards God melts into tenderness towards Him, like the New England thaw in April. Your heart will start to warm to Him. Before Christ, anytime time someone um, called you out on, on inadequacies and, uh, and mistakes and failures, did you notice you had this immediate sense of defensiveness? Well, the longer you walk with Jesus, guess what happens? That defensiveness starts to uh, subside. Because the, sp- the, the presence of the Spirit of God in your life starts to produce a, humil- a humility where you start to go, yeah, you know what? I do make a lot of mistakes. And this person who's drawing this out in me might, might actually be right. As you walk with the Spirit, you'll start to accept responsibility and make amends with others. The people who are... Uh, filled with the Spirit, who are in the Spirit, will start to uh, extend forgiveness and to um, ask for forgiveness in ways that you would never do before Christ. See, before Christ, you thought you had something to prove and achieve in order to make something of yourself. And now the Spirit increasingly convinces you that your identity in Christ is more than enough. That because you belong to Jesus, there is nothing else you need to do to prove your dignity, worth, and value. There's nothing more that can settle your frenetic activity of trying to prove yourself like knowing that you belong to Jesus because of the inward testimony of the, the Spirit. The, the presence of the Spirit of God in your life starts to change you from the inside out. And that, over time, becomes evidence and assurance that you really have been set free and that you really do belong to Christ Christian, your identity will drive and determine your activity. So how would your life look different if you owned this identity? How would your life look different if you started to rest in and live out the reality that you are in the Spirit and that the Spirit is in you? That you've been transferred out of this domain of the flesh and that you are now in this realm of the Spirit and that the Spirit of the living God is actively living in you and working inside of you to live out the Christian life. See, being a Christian is is not merely a new set of beliefs and a new pattern of behaviors, which it is. But more than that, more than a mere transaction, there is a real, genuine change. You have been taken out of the failure and futility of life in the flesh, and you've been placed into the freedom and the fruit of life in the Spirit. The Christian says with confidence, I am in the Spirit And the spirit is in me. The spirit of the living God has come to dwell inside of you as proof and assurance that you belong to Jesus. But that's not all. Paul says, Christian, if you you are a Christian, then number two, you are alive. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now in verse 10... Paul tells us another reality that should shape our identity. He says that though your physical bodies are dead because of sin, the Holy Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now what does that mean? It means that even though we're no longer under the eternal consequences and weight and condemnation of our sin, our bodies still bear the curse and the plague. So he's saying, listen, because sin has already invaded your body, because you were born with, with the curse, you're going to die. That's a reality that you have to come to grips with. There is no escaping physical death. Your days are numbered, and you will experience death. Your redemption in Christ has not annulled your mortality. But death, if you're in Christ, does not have the final word on your life. That's the good news. And as we'll see in verse 11... Union with Christ and life in the Spirit means that one day our death will be eclipsed by resurrection. And that future grace, what Paul is Paul saying, that because that's your trajectory, that future grace is yours today, and it actually starts to work backward into the present. So based on the righteousness of Christ, you are made alive in the spirit. Earlier, in in, in the previous chapters, Paul's already unpacked what it means to have the righteousness of Christ. So at this point in his letter, he can just say, he can use the word righteousness, one word to sum up all that he's talked about with Christ's righteousness being credited to you. And what he says now is that because of the righteousness of Christ that has justified sinners, the Spirit starts to produce life in you. He gives us life now. See, if you're still in the flesh, your body is dead because of sin. But tragically, your spirit is also dead. But if you're in Christ, though your body is dead, your spirit is alive. That's what he's saying. There is new life growing inside of you. If you're in the flesh, you're physically dead and spiritually dead. If you're in Christ, though your body will die, you are spiritually alive. That's what he's saying. So let's ask this question. How how does that identity, how does that reality... That you are alive because of the Spirit change your day-to-day life. See, these aren't abstract truths. This has implications on your life today. Because the Spirit is working life in you, because of his life-giving activity, he starts to enliven you. He starts to, uh, like the old school saints would say, quicken you. He exhorts you, encourages you. And enlivened you. You have that ministry of the Spirit inside of you. So what does that look like? Well, it means there should be conviction of sin. See, some people think that being a Christian, walking with Christ means less sin. No, it just means there's still the same amount of sin, but now there's more awareness of it. And hopefully, yes, you're putting it to death, but as the Spirit works in your life, you start to see more realities. You start to not see just your sin in terms of these surface-level things. Not just that I get angry, but now you start to attack, why do I get angry? The Spirit starts to convict you. How is this life? How is conviction of sin life? Because you hear that and you go, that sounds terrible. I don't want to know about my sin. I'd like to just pretend like it's not there. Well, the reason it's life is because sin results in death. You want to get it out, right? If there's mold in your house and you just let it go, you will get sick and sick and sick. More sick, not less sick. You need to get the mold out of the house. The the, the Holy Spirit reveals, knocks down walls, opens things up to reveal you've got mold growing in there. So it follows by pure logic then. If you want to live, you should get rid of the things that lead to death. Right? It's just like basic logic. If sin leads to death and you want to live, get rid of the sin. Sin will kill you. The longer you live with the Spirit, there should be more, not less, conviction of sin. You start to see sin for the death and poison that it is. You don't just merely avoid sin because you don't like the consequences. You avoid sin because you don't want that rot in your life. You don't want to displease the Lord. What else does it look like to have life in the Spirit? Well, you start to desire the things of the Spirit. You'll start to see an increasing desire for things of the Lord. So at the beginning of your walk with Christ, it might start with just simple obedience. You go, okay, I don't really want to live like this, but the Bible is telling me to do this, and so I'm just going to obey. You you know, and you you have this wrestle. But as you grow, as you grow, there should become genuine desires where you actually want the things of the Lord. Eventually, simple obedience changes and becomes genuine desire because God desires to change you from the inside out. So what will that look like? Well, you'll have an increasing desire for fellowship with God in prayer and in his word. As you grow in your relationship, the spirit is going to cultivate... This desire to go, I want to spend time with the Lord. I want to talk to Him. I want to see what He has to say about my life in the Word. I want to saturate myself in it. Life in the Spirit leads you to desire to be with God's people, like what we're doing right now. You don't simply go to church out of duty, but life in the Spirit means you go to church to be with God's people out of delight. You delight, you long to be with God's people. Life in the spirit will lead you to tell others God's story. See, as his, as his life is producing, as his spirit is producing life in you, you'll want to tell others about the life you have found. Like when we find a good restaurant, we want others. Man, I, want, I want other people to enjoy these tastes, these foods, these, these textures. And so you tell people about it. Hey, have you heard about this restaurant? It's so good. You got to go. What's happening? Genuine delight is, 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 it can't be contained in the heart, and so it flows out from the mouth. Life in the Spirit means you, you can't contain it anymore, and you want to tell others about the life you found. Life in the Spirit means an increasing desire to put sin to death and cultivate practices of holiness. It means you'll look for opportunities to serve others. Why? Because you're, be, you're being uh, transformed in the image of Christ, who was a servant He came not to be served but to serve and give us life as a ransom for many. So if you're going to become more and more like Jesus, you know what you're going to find? You want to serve others. Again, not out of duty but out of delight. It's my joy to serve. Life in the spirit means you'll be magnetized towards the Lord. You'll be drawn to him and the things that increase and optimize that magnetism as opposed to things that detract from that magnetism. On my uh, tool bag, I have a set of bits. You know what bits are They go, that, that help you drive screws and fasteners, right? That's what they do. Okay, um, I, on my bag, I have uh, these things, to, they're called bit railers and they have bits easily accessible and uh, you, so that you can easily grab one and throw them on a, a driver, okay? And uh, one of the bit rails I have, yeah, it's very good. Um, uh, and on this bit rail, uh, I have a mechanism uh, that can do two things. Um, it can magnetize a bit, and it can demagnetize a bit. Because sometimes you want your, uh, your fasteners to stick to your, 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 your driver so that they don't fall when you're trying to put them in. And then there's sometimes when you don't want that to happen. And so this little mechanism, um, you, can, you, know, you can take the end of your driver, and you can rub it on the magnetizing end, and it magnetizes it. And then if there's an application where you go, I don't want that, you can demagnetize it. Like John's mind just was like, okay. It's, 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 an, it's an incredibly valuable thing. Life in the Spirit means you, you start to do things that magnetize your relationship towards God instead of the things that demagnetize your walk with the Lord. You see that? You go, I want to be around the things that will magnetize me to him as opposed to the things that demagnetize me towards him. That's what life in the Spirit will do. Cultivate things in your life that draw you to Him instead of things that repel you to Him. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are in the Spirit. A real dynamic change, a transfer has taken place. And now that Spirit is at work in you, enlivening you to the things of God, cultivating real, genuine change to the point where it could be said, You are alive. You are alive. Finally, you're in Christ, your future is secure. If the Spirit, verse 11, of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is just one of those uh, marvelous verses in the Bible where you see uh, the full Trinity on display. You see the, the trifold activity of a triune God. There's this interplay of the work between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is one in his being and his essence. There is one God who has eternally existed as three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're equal in power and glory. And yet, in their personalities, they are distinct. They're unified in their love and purpose. And here we see their inseparable activity in the life of a Christian. What the Father has planned from all eternity, the Son accomplished on the cross in time. And the Holy Spirit applies that work of redemption And the life of believers today. Have you ever wondered how can what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago work its way from the past into the present? You know how it happens? The power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 says that God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead through the Spirit is the same God who when you die will raise your mortal body from death to life. Think about this. Don't miss this. If you're wondering, well, how can I know that after I die on that day that the Lord will raise me from the dead? Paul says, as sure as God the Father has raised Christ from the dead, you can be sure of your resurrection from the dead. That's why Paul would say in in 1 Corinthians that the hinge belief of Christianity is belief in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a non-negotiable. If you do not believe, that Christ was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, then Christianity immediately is unplugged. All the power you get from Christianity, it's it's completely gone. It is is the thing, it is the belief that Christians have held on to. That's why anytime I'm talking with a non, it's the thing I go back to. I don't want to talk about all these other implications. I want to talk about was Jesus raised from the dead. It's the hinge of history. And Paul says, if you believe in that, with the same guarantee that the that, that God the Father raised Christ the Son from the dead, you can be assured of your future resurrection. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. And what that means is, is what is true of Christ will become true of you. It is true that Christ was raised from the dead, and your union with him means that there's coming a day when you will be raised from the dead. Listen to how Pastor Ray Ortland summarizes these verses. He says, we're no longer imprisoned within our own narrow potential, but are now owned and cared for and enveloped with an all-providing, all-forgiving, all-restoring love of God. Our ultimate destiny is now determined by the transforming power of the Spirit, not the self-defeating failures of the flesh. See, these few verses have been unpacking our identity in past, present, and future terms. And what he's saying is the incapacity of our flesh has been dealt with the moment we were transferred out of the uh, the dominion of the flesh and immediately changed when we were brought into the dominion of the life-giving realm of the Spirit. He's saying it's done. It's complete. It's finished. That's why he speaks about that in terms of past tense. It's done. And now the ministry of the Spirit is present tense. We are in the life-giving realm of the Spirit who is progressively making us more and more alive. And then he also talks about this future reality of being uh, being, uh, resurrected in the Lord. One day, our bodies will be sown into death. And then one day, Christ will come again and our bodies will be raised in resurrection life. Friends, God's love and work of redemption will not come up short. And when all is said and done, we will experience the glory of resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for the trumpet will sound, that's Christ coming back, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For the perishable body, that's this dead flesh, must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you have a trajectory that is based on resurrection victory. That is now, right now, secured for you in Christ. And that should give your identity a sense of assurance and hope. When you think about who you are, one piece of that puzzle should be this. I am someone ...with a secure, super bright future. That today is not the only days I have. This life is not the only life I have. I have life after death. It's mine in Christ. So that means there's coming a day when we will when we'll no longer be vulnerable anymore... ...to death, disease, and pain. There is coming a day when you really will be set free from all of sin and its effects. There'll be no more failure, no more feeling like life is slipping away. Instead, you will live for all eternity with full energy, full capacities, fullness of life, alive in a way that you have never been alive before. How would your life change if you lived with that sense of identity in the day-to-day? How would those truths change when you feel like you're coming up short? When you feel like death and disease is all around you? What would it look like to brace your identity with resurrection hope? So, Seven Mile, who are you? Coming back to that question we asked at the beginning, what identity is driving your activity? See, if you're in Christ, your identity goes deeper than the superficial. It's not that those things aren't important. It's just that they they shouldn't determine your activity. You are in the Spirit, friend. You're no longer controlled and compelled by the flesh, but you have been set free to live in the glory of God. And right now, if you are in Christ, the Spirit is working life inside of you to vivify and, and enliven you to the things of the Lord. And your future is secure. Death will not have the final word on your life. You can take Gospel risks, you can have gospel hope. You can grab hold of that hope and be steadfast and immovable. Friend, I hope that you will take time to consider, to do some soul reflection on who you are. There is no more profound question to answer. Don't dismiss it. Don't delay it. Who are you? Let's pray.